The Longbox Crusade presents G.I. Joe Chronicles The Devil's Due Years. Welcome to G.I. Joe Chronicles, The Devil's Do Years. I'm one of your commanders, Pat Sampson, codame DJ Christados. And joining me, as always, is my battle buddy in this operation, Jared Albrick, the yard sale artist, codame Death Probe. At ease, DJ Christados. And to all the green shirts out there tuning in for this podcast, I want to welcome you to Fort Longbox. We appreciate you tuning in to talk some post-2000 G.I. Joe comics with us as we chronicle our way through the Devil's Do Run. On this episode of G.I. Joe Chronicles, DJ Christados and I are going to rotate in two, that's right, two special ops guests on the show. For this episode, our special ops guests are, you know him and you love him from his own G.I. Joe podcast, a real American headcast. It is Aaron Moss. Codename Brotherhead, welcome to the show, Aaron. Thank you very much for having me. I've been listening to all your shows, only three episodes, but I've been listening to all the episodes and loving it so far, and it's even better now. <laughs> <laughs> humble, humble, humble. I love it. <laughs> Not because of me, because of the next guest, but you know. <laughs> yeah, we do have another guest. It is the actual author of these comics we've been reading. We are truly honored to have him here. We're still honored to have you, Aaron, but I'd like to introduce everyone to Josh Blaylock. Codename, the writer of this comic. Thanks for being on our show, Josh. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Oh, man, it is an absolute honor. It's sa- same for you, Aaron. I don't want you to feel less special. <laughs> yeah, sitting next to Josh, I, I do expect no less, man. That's, you know. <laughs> and we did contractually agree to give nothing but compliments. But if you're a regular listener of the show, you've listened to our first three episodes, you're going to know that's not too far off the mark. We love this book. Yes. We are basically going to wax Josh's car for the next hour or so. He's going to tell us where we missed, so we can get that spot again. But yeah. my wife. <laughs> We're going to be like uh, Biff Tannen from, from Back to the Future. I'm just starting the second coat, Mr. Blaylock. <laughs> Welcome you both to Fort Longbox. And now is a part of the show where we get to debrief our new recruits. Aaron, we will start with you. I know you've done it on your own show before, so you're used to giving a shorter version of it. <laughs> what is your origin story with G.I. Joe? How did you fall in love with Joe? And then go ahead and give us your three favorite. It says in the script, three favorite favorite Joes, but you can pick three favorite characters. Uh, this is actually the first G.I. Joe I've ever read. No, I'm <laughs> but I, uh, <laughs> as I've talked about my own show, I've been to superheroes for years, but back in 1987, I picked up an issue of G.I. Joe. It was issue uh, 58 off the stand, one of Cobra Commander and the new battle armor. Mm-hmm. I picked that on the stand because I, I saw that and I'd watched the cartoon for years. I was a cartoon guy first, watched the cartoon. I saw that. I'm like, battle armor? Who's that guy in the bed? What, what, the, what is this? So I picked it up and I was hooked. I started buying them ever since, which led me into comics in general and eventually led me to podcasting. So that was the issue that got you the comics. You started in Joe and Cartoons. Yeah, I started watching Cartoon first. Okay. Uh, then I picked up the comics and then eventually I picked up the toys. Yeah, that's weird. Everyone sort of has like a different path. I started with toys, but we've already been through my story. Let's get Josh's story. Josh, what is your origin story with the G.I. Joe? Where did you first find your love for it? It was definitely the toys in the cartoon first. Mm. But I don't have a definitive memory of what the like the cartoon had appeared. But I remember when Transformers debuted because it took it, t- it took over some other cartoon I was expecting to watch that day. And I was like, <laughs> what is that? But at the same time, my cousin and I hung out a lot because we were like the same age. And he had all the G.I. Joe toys. 
So I was always seeing those, but I, I kind of like crapped on them, to be honest. That was my big blasphemy. <laughs> I don't know. One day, all of a sudden, I was just interested in them. Kind of something changed. And it, I wasn't trying to fit in with him because we fought a lot, too. <laughs> but, <laughs> and then I started watching the cartoon. I think it was really the stories, you know. And then I got to appreciate the toys. And then I picked up the comic book. I think it was one of the ones in Trucial Abysma. Forget how to pronounce the country. Um, might have been the one where Quick Kick and Snow Job and Stalker mm. are all trapped. Oh, right. Yeah, I know the storyline. Yeah. I grabbed the comic. It was at a 7 Eleven. It was with my dad. And I opened it up. But I said out loud, they actually kill people in the comic book. <laughs> <laughs> dad, can I buy this? <laughs> and so th- that was from then I was like hooked on reading the comic. Oh, and, that's awesome. Uh, from there, it's a blur. <laughs> that's kind of the way it goes for most of them. And I traded all of my pristine, like, G1 Transformer toys oh, wow. for, like, any Joes I could find. Like, beat up, used, <laughs> paint chipped guys, miss on weapons. And be like, I got Mirage, or I got Wheeljack. And they're like, I got three uh, beat up Joe guys. Do you want to? <laughs> <laughs> you did turn a corner. <laughs> Just to add nerd knowledge, this and Aaron, you probably would know better than me. Isn't that storyline he was talking about? Quick kick, snow job, stalker. Wasn't that the first one that bounced between special missions yes. and regular yep. Joe? Yeah, Outback went into special missions until he got home. And yeah. Okay, oh, all right. And I noticed you guys have a parallel in Cousins because I know your cousin yeah. helped get you into Joe, Aaron. It looks like toys. Yeah. Yeah, my, yeah. I was talking about my G.I. Joe show. I was back in Nebraska <laughs> and my cousin had a lot of the toys. So we played the toys. In fact, as I talk on episode 30, which hasn't been released yet due to personal reasons, he actually had issue 30 there, the comic I read at his house, and we played his toys, and mm. that's what led me into the toys. And, and you traded all your GoBots for... Uh, I traded all your GoBots for the core. Uh, for the core. <laughs> <laughs> Well you know what? I, I might. I bet you it was the special missions issue because I also, for some reason, just love that Outback toy. Mm-hmm. I, just something toy. about him like jumped out of me. He's got a cool and unique design, that's for sure. You know, it's Outback every time you see him. He's one of those Joes. Yeah, yeah. Certain Joes. Yeah. Just you look at him, you go, "I know who that is." But speaking of Joes, Aaron, back to you. Three favorite Joes or Cobras. Three favorite characters. <sighs> I know it's hard. It's like asking me to pick my favorite child. Well, I can do that, but that's another story. G.I. Joe. It's my daughter's for the record. Oh, oh, my kids don't listen, so it's all right. Um, anyways, okay, well, I'm going to have to go with uh, the standard Snake Eyes is one of them, of course. Classic. Uh, Snake Eyes, he's just a bad mother. I'm talking about Snake Eyes. <laughs> In the comic book, I'm a big fan of Cobra Commander. Uh, the show's a bit more whiny, but I, I, Cobra Commander, I just love him, especially with his, as I've talked about, the hooded. I really mm-hmm. love that version of Cobra Commander. For the last one, I'm going to go with Zartan, just because Brad's not here. No, <laughs> I, I really like Zartan. I think he's a cool character. I think he's got a cool design. He's got the Dreadnoughts, which, you know, as dumb as they are, they make him seem smarter. That's my three for today. Now, if you ask me tomorrow, I may give you a different three. Cause, uh, again, same way with they're all great. Movies. I completely understand. <laughs> so, Josh, to you, talk about picking from your kids. You've done these characters. You've written these characters. You've been close to all of them. Got a favorite three? I'll tell you what, we'll let you cheat. We'll let you do three of your personal favorites and three that you like to write the most if you want to play that game. Oh, damn. <laughs> it is different. Like, like, like Aaron did, too. It's like the cartoon, the toys, and then the comic books. It's like, you know, they're different. And it's, I'm really bad about picking favorites of anything. For writing them, they're almost all bad guys. <laughs> but uh, I just writing Destro, yes. just that character is so layered and, you know, has such a cool allegory into, you know, real life 
for being a, such a super villain, you know, there's the whole layered history of being an arms dealer and then all of the medieval history. And there's a real family like this, you know, and uh, the uh, Zartan, because there was this side of the mystery behind him and at the same time, the biker element. And I always had this, you know, what I try to do in the stories is explain like, how the hell does this guy end up? In charge of all these bikers <laughs> from Australia. It was like, a hit, right? you know. <laughs> and uh, try to get that done in the series of the comics. And uh, just I always thought they were super cool. And even like we didn't explore them as much as we should have. But Tomex and Zaymot, yeah, there was cool. something cool about them. Could be because I have a scar right here from uh, <laughs> since I was like two years old. <laughs> I was like, he's me, <laughs> and they're rich. <laughs> <laughs> For the toys, though, uh, I was obsessed as a kid with barbecue. Uh-huh. I would try to draw him all the time, and I just couldn't draw the angles of the face. And then he's just that bright orange color. Right. And then when um, the Iron Grenadiers and the Golden Mask Destro came out, I just lost my mind. <laughs> oh, Gold Mask Destro. Yeah, that was pretty sweet. Yeah. I like the Grenadiers. Those are really cool design. You've mentioned yeah. it a couple times. Yeah. You- Some of the, I mean, all those, I forget. I'm so bad. I can't remember. I don't remember the guy's name. Um, He's in the uh, Netflix special designed a lot of the original snake eyes and it, oh, it was right, it was right. a just not that many people worked on a lot of those core original designs and i think as i got older i could see where they took you know, the crimson guards were probably influenced by star wars and Battlestar galactica designs you know and then the crimson guards and the iron grenadiers and i don't know so many of those characters in that, that early to mid 80s were just brilliant isn't it always the kind of way it goes so even with star wars we're more fascinated with the darker side that that evil or you know, the enemy side of things they yeah. always got the cooler stuff yeah and just as a design perspective you know i i think it's because they felt more constrained by reality with the gi joes and they're trying to base them off of you know military armor and, and equipment and everything like and fatigues and then when it came to cobra you know you had marvel in there saying hey we're basically going to make the legion of doom versus mm. you know or making hydra versus yeah. <laughs> you know the military but snake eyes was an exception for example and that's why you know he stands out and yeah all your big standouts from series one look different snake eyes scarlet stalker are probably the big three standouts and they have the different uniforms yeah. you know it's a good iconic design when anyone can draw it mm. and no matter how bad it is you kind of know the character right away the <laughs> so snake eyes I've a few drawings like that <laughs> or goggles, you know like and it's like Anyone could be like, oh, probably Snake Eyes, really Batman. Okay, yeah, Batman. You know, you know. Whereas you try to draw, you know, Flint, you're like, I don't know, it's French artist of the beret. <laughs> oh, that's fair. That's fair. Well, I appreciate you guys' insights, and we'll move the show along back to DJ Cristados for his intelligence report for this episode. What's the intel report, Cristados? Well, thank you, Jared. I'm glad you asked. For this mission, we'll be covering G.I. Joe number four, published by Image, got a cover date of 2002. Its on-sale date was March 6, 2002. Editor was Scott Worley. Writer is Josh Blaylock. It's uh, Blackshock. <laughs> no, Blackshock. He's messing with you, Cristiano. Oh, penciler, Steve Kurth. Anchor is John Larter. Colorist is Hi-Fi Color Design slash Brian Miller. Letterer is Robin Spihar. And cover artist is Jeff Scott Campbell, and that's mm, mm, good. Mm, good. <laughs> and speaking about the cover, Death Probe, please take us through the cover description. Well, thanks, Christados, and I'm glad you asked. Take cover! 
The image eye is blue, and the cover price went up 30 cents from $2.95, but that's fair because this issue has an extra page count. 32 pages of story. The main action focuses on Flint as he punches out a cobra on the lawn of the White House. It's all-out war. We can see Scarlet and Rock and Roll fighting more Cobras in the background as more troops are parachuting in. Along the left and right borders, we see the floating heads of Duke, Snake Eyes, Spirit, Lady J, Hawk, Cobra Commander, Destro, Major Blood, Baroness, and Zartan. A lot going on in this cover. And what did you think of the cover? I'll start with you, Aaron Moss, as a guest. We'll let Josh think about how he wants to comment on his own cover design here in just a minute. Aaron, what did you think of the cover? Risking not being asked back anymore. J. Scott Campbell, I'm hit or miss on. This That's all the time here. we have for you today, Aaron. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> That's right, Peter. I'll see what's up now. Thank you very much. How dare you, sir? <laughs> no soup for you. No soup for you. All right, tell us your honest opinions. We'll tell you why you're wrong. Overall, I love the cover. Some of the characters are a little too cartoony for me on the side. Fair. But I do love the way that we got... The G.I. Joe's on one side, Cobra's on the other. It reminds me like the old school Just League and JSA crossovers. Yes. How they used to do that. It's like you said, it's great action. We got the Vipers there in the back. I love Vipers. We made your blood. It's just an all out action cover. I said, my only complaint I say is some of the characters do look a little cartoony for me. A Major Blood's another one that looks a little cartoony, but it's reminiscent of. The old DC, like I said, the JLA covers when they would put the characters on the cover. It just makes me smile. All right. You ended it well, so I'll give you that. All right, Josh. You get to comment on your own cover artist. So hopefully, you know, you can be honest. And I don't think J. Scott Campbell listens to the show, so I think you're safe. Uh, what th- did you think of the cover for your own issue for, my friend? Well, Aaron's right. I definitely, it, it, it was definitely intended to homage those old classic Marvel DC covers where the characters' heads are on the side and mm-hmm. perfect for any team book. Yeah, I love J. Scott Campbell. Still do. He just knocked it out of the park on all four of the covers he did. For, oh, he did more than four, but uh, all the covers he did for us. And this one, uh, being as long ago as it was, I uh, think I'm remembering this correctly. <laughs> I just wanted to go for... He came in with the layouts and all these. All I sent originally was, you know, I, I had done all the new character redesigns when I got the license and sent those. But that's all he had to go off of. And... I, he just sent me back these layouts to approve and would always have a few different ideas. And this was just full on, you know, it's G.I. Joe on the White House lawn. <laughs> you know, we, we wanted to really go as fun and G.I. Joey as we could get with the first four covers. Mission accomplished. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was really happy with how this one came out. There's actually a whole kind of like what built the hype for this entire return. Part of the plan was... um that this was also why I was so shocked to find that retailers at the time didn't understand how popular this was going to be. Wizard Magazine, which back in the day, Wizard Magazine, before the internet, social media, mm-hmm. you know, it was just message right. boards with fans. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it was Wizard Magazine was like Rolling Stone for comic books <laughs> for anyone. Yep. And now they're like, what's Rolling Stone do? <laughs> Rolling Stone <laughs> used to be a big deal for music. Uh, just it was believe just, us, people. <laughs> if you were anyone or anything in comic books, you had to get mentioned in Wizard Magazine, um, Comic Buyer's Guide, and uh, a couple other ones. The Wizard was like the big one. Mm-hmm. And for years, at least two, three, four years, they had been doing all of these big fan homage double page spread, they would go and they would commission the most popular artists in comics to draw. So they had J. Sky Campbell was one of them, had him drawing G.I. Joe, Thundercats, He-Man, Transformers, and every article that they would wrap that around was based on, you know, when are these things coming back? Where are these things? We want these things so bad. And then everyone reading it, it's like, yes, we want these back so badly. And no one at the top was listening. <laughs> so um, <laughs> when I managed to get the license and I was like, yeah, J. Sky Campbell is where I have to go to. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, fortunately he agreed to do them. Oh, that's great. Definitely. Yeah, so it's like we that, that was everybody who'd been clamoring up over in Wizards saw that J. Scott Campbell cover, and then we leaked the back cover with the David Michael Beck painting mm-hmm. of Snake Eyes, Thank and then you guys have that, yeah. one of my favorite ones ever is that Cobra Commander one. That's good stuff. My thoughts on the cover is um, it definitely was interesting to hear how you got J. Scott Campbell mm-hmm. on board. Uh, definitely a great choice because I remember back in those days too, seeing his drawings and just going, wow, he, he really does draw those 80s kids stuff that we liked growing up and just gives you that warm feeling again when you see it. This particular cover reminds me of the bigger, um, you know, five-part miniseries of, I think maybe it was the Weather Dominator one where they're in Washington and they got those shields out and all that. They're all kind of waiting on Colbert to attack with so they can collect the energy and push it back up again. So this is kind of what this reminds me of, where you're in that the Washington, D.C. kind of a setting, and you got G.I. Joe just defending America the way they should be doing, kicking some Cobra. It almost feels like the intro to that, the G.I. Joe, the movie cartoon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're all flying around the Statue of Liberty. One of the best animated opening sequences ever. Very much so. Well, Jared, we didn't get your thoughts, so go ahead and let us know what you thought. Yeah, you know, we commented about it before, and I'm just kind of wrapping up everything that everybody said. This whole new run of G.I. Joe that Josh blessed us with, with him and his team, is a perfect blend of the old comic, the toy line, the cartoon elements that mm-hmm. are thrown in. We, we you've t- Everyone's touched on each one of those in the cover alone, and Campbell is killing it. And we've talked about this before. This series coming out literally the day after September 11th to see something so patriotic with the White House and Joe's fighting cobras and defending our country. Just it's a case of perfect timing, perfect art, great design. Aaron, I'm glad you mentioned the old JLA JSA head things because it just clicked in my brain the second you said that's perfect. But uh, oh, but I'm yeah, a big fan of those. I just recently got into them. I found a stack of some from the 70s at like a flea market. And I was like, this is kind of a cool design. And Pat and I talked about that a little bit over on Crusader Chronicles. I think we did an issue of JSA from the 70s. Correct. Very much in this vein. So just good stuff here. And back to you, Pat. All right. Well, now that we got everybody's thoughts on the cover, let's figure out how we're going to rate this on a scale of one to 10 flag points. One meaning you didn't like it at all and 10 meaning it's perfect and you should make it a recruiting poster. We'll start with Aaron this time. He's going to be our big bummer, I can tell already. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say one. You no, get the, joking, get the hell off my show. I'm joking. No. You got to grade it based on, based on being a J. Scott Campbell cover or how you like his <laughs> other covers. <laughs> no, honestly, as I said, I'm here about J. Scott Campbell, but the layout, everything else, everything we talked about, I'm going to have to give it an eight. All right. Am I still allowed to be here? Yeah. My mention to the room. Okay. remain. <laughs> Jared. I would say, let's see, first cover we gave a 10. Mm-hmm. Second cover I gave it a 10. Third cover was Zartan. I went with nine just because I'm not as big of a Zartan guy. And I think this one's going to fall into a nine as well. I'm very strong on this one as well. So it's been all nines and tens since J. Scott kicked this thing off and mm-hmm. no reason to stop now. All right. Josh? I really want J. Scott Campbell to do some more covers yeah. for me. And he's, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's back to do a quarter, too much money It's too easy yeah. to do whatever he wants right now. So I'm going <laughs> to give it 11. <laughs> that's that's bold cool. strategy right there. I love it. <laughs> oh, but I'll throw a curveball. I will give number three's cover a seven. Ooh. Because number three was supposed to have Zanya on the oh, on the bike, the chameleon mm-hmm. with Zartan, and she was driving. Oh, and he was hanging on. I, I think I'm getting that right. <laughs> it's been 18 years, and uh, and he was like shooting, and Hasbro just freaked out. 
because it was too provocative. Because okay. and I was like, it's his daughter. <laughs> <laughs> They're on a, like a. Don't think of it as a motorcycle. They didn't like daughter. that. You know, she was bent over this thing to drive it. <laughs> That's hot. So I've always had in my head. <laughs> I, I'm kind of. I'm inside. Yeah, is our, is our, <laughs> like, oh god, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I've always had it in my head, you know, like what it could have looked like. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, see, this is why we have Josh on for the inside scoop. Yeah. Very <laughs> nice. All right. Well, I guess it comes down to me. It does. What do you um, think, man? Nine or a ten. Those are the choices we usually come down to. <laughs> it, it's true. And I think in talking this out, I'm going to give this a ten. Uh, it, it's up there just because when I do look at that, it gives me that warm feeling again of, you know, watching the cartoon, uh, that five-part miniseries again, uh, always rushing home from school to watch those. I do really like J. Scott Campbell's art in Danger Girl and all the other covers that he's done. It's just something It makes me feel great inside. So, giving it a 10. Awesome. It is pretty impressive to fit like 17 or 18 characters on a cover. Mm-hmm. Yes. Danger Girl was just a love letter to G.I. Joe. It was like mm-hmm. G.I. Joe, Charlie's Angels mashup. Yeah. So, all those villains were all G.I. Joe ripoffs, kind of, you know, or homages. <laughs> <laughs> And then they even did a crossover years later. That's right. Yeah. Well, with the covers out of the way, let's go back to Death Probe for the story synopsis in our mission brief. Now, as regular listeners of the show will know on G.I. Joe Chronicles, we like to mix things up a bit. I'm going to have DJ Cristados pull the randomizer to determine the synopsis point of view. Will I tell it from Joe's point of view or Cobra's point of view? Only Cristados will know once he pulls the lever. Pull the lever, Cristados! <laughs> It is from the Joe point of view. I can handle that. Here we go. Look in the eyes of a hero And see the sacrifice within There's no way out for the hero He only lives to fight again You gotta hand it to Cobra under Destro's leadership. They deployed their nanonite technology to key U.S. cities and military bases, causing a lot of panic and unrest. And then those pesky snakes roll into town with goods that they've stolen from the U.S. military and play the heroes for the civilian populace. It's actually a pretty clever hearts and minds psyop strategy. What Cobra didn't count on was the tenacity of Lifeline and Mainframe as they worked tirelessly to find a cure for the nanomites and humans. Granted, us Joes did need a little help from a newly escaped commander, Cobra commander that is, but we were able to stand our ground in Washington, D.C. and defeat the Cobra's forces. Unfortunately, most of their key players escaped, and some questions still linger. Who helped Cobra Commander escape Destro's prison? What's going to happen now that the real Destro is back on his feet? And most importantly, will Scarlet accept the wedding ring that Snake Eyes presented her at the end of this issue? And now it's time to get into our highs and lows. There will be no lows because the writer is with us today, so you are not allowed to have any lows. So in our first round of highs and lows, you get to pick a high or a low. You know how this works, Aaron. Just to throw everybody a curveball, I'm going to start with my partner, DJ Cristados. You're the worst about trying to squeeze in a half dozen of these. Pick one high or one low, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely enjoy all the layering that's kind of going on with the characters that's happening here. With this bigger issue, you have a lot of character development going on with Zartan and his daughter, Mm -hmm. uh, and then her finding out why Zartan wants to help Destro out. You have Destro's son kind of going on as we found out who that was and seeing Destro actually get up. You have the love story, I guess, between Snake Eyes and Scarlet as well, too. So hats off to Josh here for just a great storytelling in this issue. Well done, sir. 
Well done. Sam. I like his reviews because it helps me remember what the hell was in the book. <laughs> He's like, what happened? <laughs> okay. It's been 18 years. It's all flooded back. Who doesn't have a copy of his go. own comic? <laughs> Aaron, high, low, or question for the man? I'm going to go with a high. Good for you. Uh, my, my first high, actually, Pat took was the Snake Eyes and Scarlet Romance. I, I love the fact that he brought that back up. So since he took that, I'm going with my next high I had is just Cobra's plan in general. Mm-hmm. The fact that he sabotaged America and then they stepped up and made mm-hmm. it look like they were the good guys. That was magnificent. Plan. I love the way that came up. Josh, I, I bow at your feet. That was fantastic. I love the way you did that. That was just just great. I mean, it's, it's a very Cobra-type plot, but more so than normal. I mean, it's, it's again, almost would have succeeded. Definitely. It almost would, makes it like an even battleground between the two. I don't know if I got it directly from Larry Hama or if I just extrapolated this and made it up. <laughs> <laughs> my own thing. But it's like the idea with Cobra Commander in the, the comics is that, you know, he's supposed to be the kind of guy where anybody gets left in a room with him for like 15 minutes and they walk away like, well, he's got some good points. <laughs> like, <laughs> it just, he, you know, he would, he's supposed to have some charisma that way. Right. That's why he's good at what he does. Yeah, it just seemed like the kind of thing they would do. And what happens in real life a lot. <laughs> yeah, I've worked... Actual military PSYOP Hearts and Minds campaigns. And I guess I'll use my first round to pose the question. Was that something that you had researched or just a story point that came to you? If you can remember from 18 years ago. I really wish I could say I remember more than I but... <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's funny. Now I, I, I know so much more now after years of learning than I did back then about the behind the scenes operations and how the military works and how the political side works with the funding and everything else going on in all these different countries. Some of it was definitely from like wanting to really make sure that even though I was always trying to give a wink and a nod to the cartoon, the Cobra Commander always stayed, Cobra in general stayed this character that was tied to reality and he always had this charismatic influence on people and there'd always be a little bit of a gray area in there. I think some of it just maybe like organically because my stepdad was in the Air Force. He worked for the NSA at Fort Meade, Maryland. Mm-hmm. I didn't know he worked for the NSA until like a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, before, <laughs> yeah, that, that works. <laughs> before that he worked at Wright Pat and my mom was a civilian at Wright Pat. So I was always around, you know, people working that environment. Okay. While my uncle on my dad's side was actually friends with a, a bike gang. So <laughs> got to see the biker side. <laughs> <laughs> so, see all the ingredients yeah, all came together. together yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the more brilliant things here in this plan and in this whole first four reinstated series that we're sort of closing out that first chapter, main chapter, is Cobra Commander's quite sidelined. And you've got the new young Destro that we all thought was real Destro for a while and ended up being the son of Destro. I mean, there's so many layers of cleverness involved here. I know we're waxing your car again. <sighs> <laughs> That's that was awesome. It was, and it's funny as we went back to read GI Joe for this Chronicles podcast. Pat and I kept remarking about how we'd kind of forgotten some of this stuff, and it's almost like reading the first time. We're like, oh my gosh, this was yeah, so how- good. Well, I didn't forget as much as I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem when you go back and read stories like that, especially like that, is how I still to this day write. Hopefully, I've gotten better at it. I hate stories that have these big intertwining plots and then they go nowhere. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, episodic TV has really taken us in like some let- major letdown directions, you know, lost, probably pioneered like the first major <laughs> letdown and then Battlestar Galactic and all these. I've just always been like, I have to, even if the characters are just going to be having these small interactions, I have to know the whole story behind that world before I can go back to like having the characters interact. And when I get stuck in a, a writer's block, it's when I'm trying to have two characters like chat or something that I realize, oh, shit, 
that I didn't even think of really much about these characters. You know, they were just kind of like sidelines. And now, oh man, now I got to take the rest of the day to think of all this stuff. And build, <laughs> again, it's all because it's all it, just so there's no plot holes or story holes. I'm sure I still have some, but just so there's no holes that happen later, even if you end up never touching on it. So right. when you go back to read something or, or you try to remember something you wrote years later, it's like, well, I don't remember what I put in a story and what just was existing in like, you know, crazy person notes. All scribbled in a book somewhere that kept track of everything. Um, well, but yeah, I, the Destro thing. So that was purely partially selfish. That was just, I love Destro. Mm-hmm. And for years, from the cartoon side of things, everybody always just felt like, man, Destro is badass. Why does he just not kick Cobra Commander aside and take over? <laughs> Destro's awesome. And there, to the point, there was a little bit of that in the comic book. But Larry never wrote Cobra Commander like a punk. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to get Duster in there in charge for a while. I wanted to like give people that moment. I wanted that moment. The thing with the sun was uh, I thought that one, this kind of double like, layered thing here, a layered thing here, uh, <laughs> Destro, one, there has to be, he, he's so perfect and awesome and like that he's a noble guy, but he's a bad guy and he's so smart and dignified. Then why does he hang around Cobra Commander all the time and still work with him and kind of do what he says sometimes? There has to be something that Cobra Commander is better at than him. And it's the mm-hmm. part where Cobra Commander can manipulate people to do things better, oh, okay. and, including Destro. I wanted to show, poke a little bit of whole, I mean, epitome of almost like royalty and that dignified, you know, European royal heritage kind of a, mm-hmm. a thing. So he's got to have some parts in the skeleton where he's just kind of a piece of crap, you know, because he still is a bad <laughs> guy, you know. So he's got to be a hypocrite in a lot of ways. And one of them was I thought it'd be cool if, to have the sun. Also, this sounds silly, but everyone watching the cartoon, it was always like Destro is black. You know, Destro is this cool, you know, Arthur Burghardt voice mm-hmm. actor. Voice you know, actor, this cool, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. badass black guy. And, you know, we never got that because he was Scottish. And I didn't even, as a kid, you don't even know that. And you read the comics like, oh, he's Scottish. What? So, <laughs> you know, that was kind of an opportunity to throw that in there. And then um, there's a third part or another part. And I totally forget what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? We're going to cut you some slack because before the show aired, Josh was 23 when he wrote this. Wow. <laughs> 20. What were you doing? Twenty-three or twenty-four, maybe. Twenty-three or twenty-four. I think I was just about to put on first lieutenant bars. Didn't know what the hell I was doing. I still don't. And he's out here writing one of the greatest runs in GI Joe history. So it's okay if you forget a little bit. <laughs> what, what was it like, Josh? To I mean, I'm going off a story, but in in the Joel realm, what was it like to be when they said, "Yeah, you can have this property," and and you know, go ahead and do this. Did you get some stuff from Larry, or you know, to get all that extra background you needed? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> we're friends um we still i love uh, uncle larry he's awesome i i still i just talked to him in chicago it was um obviously part terrifying part you know just really exciting enthused you know in some way also like finally about time because the process was so long mm. you know and I, i'd actually been self-publishing comic books for about five or six years because i started right as high school was ending and put out some crappy books and then some little bit better books and got them, you know, it was partially like a career process wanting to get into comics. I got involved in some licensing stuff in my day job for like, I had for like two years, which involved 80s properties being really successful. And then just so knowing like, this is this real tangible thing, you know, this could really happen and just waiting, you know, like, come on, come on already. Let's get this done. It took months to get the contract done. Then once I got the contract, it was a matter of uh, deciding if I was going to self-publish it, which I had no idea how I would do that, but I was going to figure it out. It was more about just the money. Mm -hmm. I knew how to publish. Went to Image, got turned down on my first try. 
was going to go to some other publishers, but then someone else's image from a different department said, yeah, we'll do it. They didn't really know what to make of it. But meanwhile, all this stuff I was talking about earlier at Wizard Magazine, you know, had the fandom, like, mm-hmm. you know, just yeah, fiending just... for this stuff. Oh, yeah. And then meanwhile, because what I kind of mentioned for a second was there was t-shirts and merchandise in malls all over the country. And people were going crazy for that stuff. So I knew this was going to be big. And I knew we had the right team on it. Did. Yeah, it was just kind of agonizing waiting and then just watching the message boards. And, you know, <laughs> this essentially was making my the beginning of my career. You know, I, I until then I was getting experience, but no one really knew who I was. So it was the weird reaction of just the complete excitement of the fandom mm-hmm. versus the most vicious, you know, criticism from the fandoms that didn't think you were doing something the right way. So that was an initiation, just coming right into your first big professional project, getting attacked all the time and having to learn how to deal with that, you know. Um, now, I didn't know anybody that didn't like this book. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, no. Any, any I wasn't on the message boards, and that's where all the, you know, the dark oh, side hangs oh, yeah. out. There's the cartoon camp, there's the comic camp, there's people in the comics camp. Like, it's just, it's no matter what you do with it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, you read, like, the if there's 10 positive reviews and two negative ones, you read the negative ones. Yeah. <laughs> and then negative people are on there all the time. Um, mm-hmm. But it makes you it makes you stronger you dealing with that change. stuff later on. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's what's weird now on social media. It's like the average person gets to go through all that sometimes and it sucks. And whereas if you, you know, it helps <laughs> steal you against it a little bit if you had to deal with it from a fandom level like that before. There was a weird snarkiness kind of really, and there was an awkward thing with Hasbro. They didn't really understand the characters. So they thought that we were making up all this weird fanboy stuff. All, all I was trying to do was tap into like what was missing from the, yeah. like what the fans wanted. I wasn't making it up. There was like snarkiness from some of the comic book community, the older camp, which now I mean like the older crowd. I mean, I mean like 35, you know, they're just like, oh, the 80s stuff. You know, when's this stuff going to be over? <laughs> so um, when is this fad going to end? And I'm like, <laughs> Spider-Man and Batman are 80s. You know, they, they, they're, they're, they are. They are in their own way 80s retro. There's the 80s cartoons. You know, there's 80s movies. There's 90s X-Men. You know, it's it's just continual retro. Yeah. Just so this just happens to be the first time that these things that people grew up with, you know, are coming back in their retro phase. Yeah. The Turtles and, uh, have done it like six times now, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so there was a little bit of like, kind of like when you get critically acclaimed versus you're working on the mainstream thing and no one gives you the critical respect. So there was a little bit of that, but all in all, it was, so it was this weird whirlwind of everything, you know, the excitement, the kind of jabs, and then like the industry kind of older crowd just not knowing what's going on or understanding why it was so popular. Meanwhile, you're just trying to get your book out. I was doing everything. I think the first couple issues, I think I lettered them myself. And did all the design on the books, putting them together. and All the layouts and that, yeah. There was the convention special that came out right before the book. And I did that all myself in two days. Just oh, put wow. the whole thing together <laughs> out of an apartment. You know, I first moved to Chicago. I also moved to Chicago right as I was starting to email interactions back from Hasbro. Like this might actually, it wasn't an immediate no. And it looked like it could possibly happen. I was in Cincinnati and I wanted to move. And I really fell in love with Chicago. And I was like, well... If this does happen, it's probably not, but I'm going to have to set up roots somewhere for a while. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to set those roots up here. So if I'm going to move, I need to do it now. So I also decided to like move with no money <laughs> the first time. Yeah, so it was all it was all crazy and a blur. Caused me some health problems in my early 20s after my mid-20s. Dang, man. I hate that. But then you're in the middle of it. And it's like, boom, the first issue came out, you know, 100,000 copies. I think we sold 130,000 of the first, if you figure in the second printing. I bought um, one. <laughs> <laughs> I bought one. 
Maybe two. <laughs> yeah. It was like Image's best-selling book. We were the number two book that month. The only reason we weren't the number one book in the country was because of Paul Jenkins' Wolverine Origins came out. Uh, uh, so right. it's like yeah. first time ever Wolverine's origin story <laughs> being told. <It's> like, <laughs> what a ride, but, man. But Larry, uh, it was kind of awkward, you know, because I, I called him just because I had, you know, you had to like, hey, it's Larry Hammond, but I wasn't asking him to work on it. It was, it was to some extent like, hey, this is, I put everything I have into getting this license and risking this. Mm-hmm. I'm writing this. You know, this Mm -hmm. is my only, this is my way to get known. Mm -hmm. And also I had a story I wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. So I always wanted to bring Larry in, but it was kind of awkward. Like I got to call this guy and you know get to know him and say, thank you for creating us, but not ask him to work on the book. (laughs) But what I didn't know is Larry always answers the phone. You you call his house. He's just the way he pretty much answers the phone. Like, hello. You're like, Hey, this is Josh, blah, blah, blah. Working on, you know, GI Joe. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But then you learn like, oh, no, that's just how Larry talks about anyone, about anything. (laughs) (laughs) I've experienced Larry a couple of times. He's a man of few words. (laughs) Yeah, but he's got the best stories in the world. (laughs) He does. He does. Yes. That's super cool. Thanks for the insight. I don't think we should force Josh to do highs and lows on his own story unless he wants to. But I like the format we've got here of kind of bringing up things we like and giving insights for Josh. I honestly don't remember enough. I I thought I had, you know, I waited until like yesterday because I was going to skim through it and I looked through the copies I have and I was like, I don't have number four. (laughs) (laughs) Something about nanomites and. (laughs) Well, we'll clue you in along the way. I apologize to everyone for the Michael Bay putting nanomites in the first movie and <laughs> using the way he did. You taking a hit for that, Josh? <laughs> Don't blame me for Colbert deciding to knock the Eiffel Tower over to be bad guys. <laughs> See, the, in my opinion, the difference is you did it in a good way. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I think it's back to you, Pat. You have any points you want or questions? I mean, it's basically turned into a Q&A, which is wonderful. Yeah. I'm all for talking about our highs and then rolling them into questions. So what do you got, man? Well, you know, I just want to talk about the artwork as well, too. Just Josh, you did the layouts on this one as well, too. But the artwork is just amazing in this one as well. The colors by Hi-Fi Color is makes it just even pop more. So when you're holding this in your hand, it's just like, you know, it's eye candy. And mm-hmm. and to have G.I. Joe back again from the, the hiatus that it was kind of on with the story you just shared with us, you know, thank you for your patience and waiting for that to happen, to continue the torch to go on and getting Joe back out there for us that wanted to relive this. The artwork in here is, is really, really good. Yeah, I loved Steve Kurth's detail and, you know, he was so good at doing those whether it was like all this detail for a lot of the tech and the vehicles mm-hmm. in the background and or just all the gear doing these big team shots we got a lot of criticism for his art in the beginning because of the, some of the line words on the faces and everything i get it but it's just stylized you know yeah and somebody brought that up after we did our first episode remember that pat they said they weren't sure about the lines and the faces and and we were of the opinion that well, they're older. They were, they're older, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got I, lines I, my face. I probably would have found a, a little <laughs> bit, still would have had the time, some time passed. I probably would have done a workaround on some of the aging. But even though I was early 20s, I had the attitude of like, hey, I don't know, these guys could basically be like in their mid-30s and they're still going to kick ass. They're going to yeah. be super, they're the elite of the elite of the elite. They're going to be in super good shape and they're going to... Yeah, for Bazooka. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, look, if you're going to bring that bazooka, up. Yeah. He was 100% cartoon bazooka, obviously. <laughs> um, 
And then it's funny, we had this guy, Brandon Bateau, who was drawing it a couple years later, and Bazooka was just, like, jacked, like a He-Man character, because every character, all of a sudden, for a few issues, is just drawn, just, they're just, you know, jacked up. full on, they're like The Rock. Well, Brandon Bateau, the artist, he looked like that. I mean, oh. he was just monster. <laughs> so. It's like um, me. Yeah. Yeah, like all, like all of us. <laughs> Yeah, I loved I loved Kurt's stuff. And how I did you how did you come on. to Kurt? Did that just the guy you knew, or how did you how did no, you? No, actually, so I asked my good friend at the time, Tim Seeley, <laughs> to mm, heard uh, of him. Yep, he's a super popular writer now. He writes Nightwing, Grayson, Batman, Green Lantern, Deadpool, Thanos. He's got a lot of his own indie stuff. He the most popular creator on thing he's done is Hack Slash, right? Which we I, originally published. Um, yeah, I actually met him at a con in Daytona, Florida. I think two years ago, we were at the same comic. Yeah, I think he does that a lot. So he's now mostly known as a writer, but he's a phenomenal artist. And we just met coming up self-publishing black and white comics because it's so long ago. We were mailing, you know, Mm -hmm. I was in Ohio. He was in Wisconsin or Minnesota. He danced around. We were trying to work on stuff together. And uh, I was like, hey, I got this. You know, do you want to draw it? And he didn't think he was good enough to do it. I was like, well, I don't think I'm good enough to draw it myself. I'm drawing my own comics, but I don't think I'm good enough to draw G.I. Joe. I was like, I want you to draw. He's like, I don't think I'm good enough to draw. (laughs) So (laughs) my friend Steve is really good. You should check him out. And uh, that's how that came about. Oh, okay. Very cool. Cool. I like to think we were all, you know, had uh, some sense of self-awareness on our skill levels on what we were doing. (laughs) Although I'll still argue Tim was every bit good enough to draw it at the Uh, time. He probably might have hated drawing some of the gear, but it would have been his first profession. And he did end up drawing it. So he drew G.I. Joe after that for a couple of years, at least. And then he ended up writing some stories as well. Now he's way more popular than I am. (laughs) (laughs) Not on this podcast. (laughs) Aaron, drop me one more high or low. Better make it a high or ask a question. By all means, we've got the man here. I'm going to give it a high. As uh, we've heard from the great Josh himself that, you know, he was a fan of the cartoon, the comics, the toys and all that. I think that shows not just this issue, but the entire run that, he had a love for G.I. Joe in general. I mean, as we heard, he had a lot of work into getting this back out. Personally, I think it shows in the writing. We can see, you know, the characters you use. It's just, I don't know how to say it. Yeah, it just, it's fantastic. I just love, we do see bits of the cartoon, the comic, but it ties up things from the comic book. It shows the love that you have for this. I think it's fantastic. I love it. Thanks. Yeah. I'll piggyback on that. Because he did pack in so much love, like Aaron said, and care for the characters. You mentioned earlier that you did character redesigns. We mentioned in an earlier episode that we were really happy that Shipwreck got a redesign. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think he might have been the first one I redesigned. <laughs> it was the first toy I ever had. First, oh. My Aunt Pam bought me Shipwreck when I first started saying I wanted G.I. Joe guys. I don't know if he was the first one I, like, finagled, <laughs> but he was the first one I got in a blister pack, you know, opened it up, bring a new uh, toy. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Yeah. Not from your bartering system. (laughs) I'm sorry, what were you going to, you were going to ask something though. (laughs) Did you feel handcuffed at all? Because the one thing that we've talked about, and we didn't talk about it in a negative way, and I'm not just saying that because you're here right now, (laughs) is these things are freaking packed. Panels, storylines. Were you hoping to get a six or eight issue and they told you you had to do it in four? Was there a limitation there? Or was this your design the whole time to pack that much story into four issues? I was limited, but I think it would have been that way anyway, because that's how I write. Okay. <laughs> so, so a little column. Hopefully, a little I don't column. know. Maybe I could segue <laughs> this with telling people to read my new stuff. I do this book, Mercy Sparks. It's about a, and I'll segue back to Joe. My spiel, Mercy Sparks. It's about a devil girl that works for heaven, hunting down rogue angels. She doesn't want to do the job, so I equate her less like a, it's like a hot devil chick that was 
just wants to drink beer all the time and not do anything tasked with this big job and it's kind of like uh lucifer or constantine meets jessica jones but she acts more like bad santa because <laughs> she's a lot more similar to billy bob thornton's character and her level of apathy this is not an all-ages uh, title is it <laughs> it is not it's uh, hbo content but yeah there's this massive universe to a stupid complex level behind these books starts off as a silly premise so you know every time you meet a character there's a reason for it or there at least there's some backstory to them usually even if it never gets picked up on again. So um, back to that whole like hating to have those loose ends where you don't know where it's going. And then uh, the um, new book I'm working on called Arc World, which has a little bit of a G.I. Joe element. Saga is a really popular comic book series right now. It's kind of like I say Saga meets Ancient Aliens with a little bit of G.I. Joe in there because it's about two normal people, a guy and a girl in love just making their way or whatever. And they, um, I'm about to launch a Kickstarter for this actually, so good timing. They get caught up in what equates to a deep state conspiracy that has to do with the fate of the world. And and they have to go find this task force of all these elite military mercenary people that one of their relatives knew. It just happens that this whole thing is 13,000 years ago because it takes place in a previous advanced civilization that we don't know existed that's been wiped out. So it gets into Atlantis and oh. megalithic structures left all over the earth and all that stuff. I that's called Arc World. Back this Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> called Archeo, Archeopunk Sci-Fi. So again, there's it's like building those worlds and then going back. It's like you build that structure so that you know when you can go back and then not have to worry about it anymore. And now you can just have two characters speaking very naturally and have the dialogue flow like normal people would be talking and have them go about their day and they could still joke around or they can, you know, and then when stuff gets serious, it gets serious. You can have those moments because you already figured out all the complex crap in the background versus having people speak all holier than thou or high and mighty, you know, in this Uh like artificial language. Mm -hmm. Now, G.I. Joe, I felt probably more pressured to have some of the characters speak in their former narrative, you know, like the bad guys mostly. Back to Joe, I had this stupid restriction on me with image. This came from the top from the publisher at the time. And he said, I get it. Because I'm like a 23-year-old, 24-year-old kid coming in. They have no idea who I am. And all of a sudden, they're seeing the orders coming in. They're like, crap, this is our highest selling book. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't had a hit like this in ages. And like, what the hell is this thing? And, <laughs> Go get oh, him, kid. <laughs> oh, crap, it's this kid we don't even know. <laughs> and it's a licensed property. It's not create our own. And we're image. We do create our own stuff. So what the hell have we gotten ourselves into? I've been publishing nationally for five, six years. But I don't think they really knew how bizarrely serious and obsessive I was about being professional from teenage years. So he's like, we're doing this bi-monthly. You can't, you can't do this monthly to start. It's got to be bi-monthly. Then the orders come in with 69,000, 70,000 copy pre-orders. And then I printed 100. And then we sold out. And we did a second printing. I think a 20,000 copies sold out. The uh, printing, the combined issues one and two. Issue two came in around 89,000 copies or 80,000 copies. It's funny how you remember things when it comes to like how much like you sell for. Then uh, He's a numbers man. <laughs> it's funny. It was, it's, it's all his money. But I was also basically just paying off the debt I had had the previous year trying to get this thing going. And I made stupid deals with everyone to get them to work on the project. Like percentages of what the sales were going to be. And you look at that. Once it came out and was a hit, no one could have guaranteed that. But once it was a hit, it was like, well, crap, we just lost four months out of our first mm-hmm. hottest year. That's a couple hundred thousand dollars mm-hmm. of missed opportunity. And so you were prepared to go monthly. But oh, they my God. It killed that. me to get. Yeah. Okay. If you look, even a couple. When we started G.I. Joe Frontline, we did a weekly book. 
I we had we had we had four issues come out. I don't remember the details in the story. Francis Manipul did um, oh, yeah. the covers, and he's huge now. Oh, yeah, yeah, there were great covers back then too. We had some phenomenal cover artists on those books. So I mean, yeah, we had I had the top people in the industry. We never missed our deadlines. And as a, the company built, we were all really young. I, I had like purple hair half the time, and everyone working for us is like you know these punk rockers and artists and stuff. But we always took pride in the fact that all these people before us who were really popular that made it, their books were always late. You know, the whole image thing was right. like these like yeah. rock star artists. Well, that's fair. They were always doing this stuff and, you know, they didn't seem that professional. It's like our stuff was on time every time. I don't even know how long it was before we had a late book. You know, we were putting out hundreds of thousands of copies of titles and everything was on point. This is just a, a shout out to everyone that worked at Devil's Do. Every single book we put out, all these licensed books, they all have to do a whole other approval stage on top of how hard it already is to put out a comic book with a continuity and a fandom behind it that knows mm-hmm. these characters. We had to go through every plot, then every finished script, then every pencil line art stage, then every inked line art stage, then all the lettering and then the colors. Every single stage had to go back to Hasbro, not Absolutely. necessarily to someone who knew anything about the characters. Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. And get their approval and comments and then make concessions and change things for every single issue. Oh, and we get all that stuff out. Wow. And then, uh, that's amazing. I always think about this stuff. Anytime I'm shit about something or don't like something I see on TV or, you know, sorry, I always try to think like, did this go wrong behind the scenes somewhere? Or, you know, <laughs> mm, you've but, been um, there. it also makes you less tolerant when you feel like it was their fault. <laughs> 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 so yeah, that was, as soon as they saw, yeah, we're on top of it. We're sending our art in on time and everything Then they greenlit us to do not only to go monthly, but to have another series too. That's why it's like, as soon as I could get it going, it's kind of coming back to me. Now I did battle files, yep, which was like the, the who's who book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then we had um, Frontline came out right after that, which was Larry Hama read the first four issue arc, where we had him pick up off of some of the Marvel stuff, I think, at that time. That was like our chance to really make it. So I, I locked in the Voltron license. Micronauts just kind of fell in my lap. I didn't really know anything about Micronauts, but we took that on. Small project. It was a little before my time. (laughs) Then we had uh, G.I. Joe versus the Transformers. There was one time where I was like running a couple million dollar company and gross sales with multiple employees doing all every single book we had almost was a licensed (laughs) property. All these approvals. And I was like writing four or five books a month. I had to dial it back after a while because I actually was affecting my health after a couple of years. I hate to hear that, but I I, got to jump in and tell you that from the fans point of view, you see big books hit and then they get spinoff books and all that and quality kind of waters down. I never felt like the quality from Devil's Do ever watered down. So I just, you know, positive feedback from the other side. That means a lot. <laughs> front, dot, front line was legit. The G.I. Joe transfer. I think you had Jay Lee penciling that. Yeah, it was the Dreamwave one. The Dream. Yeah. I'm sorry, so wrong we, one. We had uh, Mike Miller was the artist. Yep, that was phenomenal. And then it shifted gears to America's Elite. Yeah, we did. Um, testament to that also was I just kept having people who were working for us too. Everyone knew the characters, knew the brand. One our editor, Michael Sullivan, he had this twice as more extensive, not like Rain Man level knowledge of all of the Joe's names and backgrounds and everything. And Pat. The, the and character, and then Sam Wells, who uh, became my assistant publisher later, he knew everything about GI Joe. Actually, he owns a vintage toy store now called Toy Day Jour because he knows everything about every toy ever. <laughs> um, yeah, just there was lots of people that just for their sheer love of it, were there at the office, you know, one o'clock in the morning, making sure that some tiny little detail was right about a character in the background. And that's the stuff you can't fake. That's the stuff that, you know, someone that's just working at Hasbro or Mattel or Paramount or wherever, you know, that's dealing with a legacy property. 
they just went to some college and they liked this stuff and they got their job and they want to go home. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> they're not doing that. <laughs> it's no, like, they're, it doesn't mean they're a bad person. They're just not an obsessive freak about it. Like the rest no, we, of us. we um, have a saying I picked up from the military of get the right people in the right places and just let them do what they do. And it sounds like that just lined up for you. America's elite came along later. It'd been, well, we, I don't know when that fell in exactly. Cause we, we did it for seven years. I was always proud of the fact that if you add up all of the individual issues we did in the miniseries and everything, you know, and then the graphic novels and the collections, we did as many books as Marvel did in 12 years. So we picked up from the Marvel continuity and we did as many books as Marvel did in 12 years. So the whole thing that the way that they kind of erased us and disavowed us from the <laughs> continuity when IDW took over was that really hurt everybody involved in it. It really kind of stung. As far as Larry starting over again from the Marvel continuity, what he's doing now, more power to him because he's Larry Hama. He can do whatever the hell he wants. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Elite, we did a reboot there. Trying to think. Oh, no, we we did Reloaded. Reloaded, yeah. This is where the fans get mad because I don't remember something specific and they know they remember it (laughs) 10 times better than me. Um, You're in a safe place here. Yeah, definitely. We did Reloaded as our reboot. We wanted to do like a ultimate style kind of reboot, just where we didn't have the continuity and could just do a different storyline with it. Mm-hmm. But Elite, that was where it really just came from trying. That was definitely was a business decision of just to have a reason to do another number one. Right. We kind of we like get new, new readers and new hype and everything. Yeah, it's something every publisher runs into after a while. It's always harder when it's not your property. Right. And you're it's kind of like building your own independent company and still having to appease shareholders. To be honest, I really cannot remember how much of that was just me wanting to do it versus Hasbro pushing us to do different things and wrapping certain stories up, things like that, changing artists around. Elite did end up having one of the best stories we've ever done, I thought, was Mark Powers. Brandon Jerwa and Michael Sullivan. Well, Mark Powers, Michael Sullivan. No, this was all Mark Powers was doing America's Elite at the end of World War Three storyline. Oh, that was good. So <laughs> that's when we knew that we were going to have to be ending it, that Hasbro was going to be taking the license away from us. So it was like, we're going to tell the best effing story we can. And uh, it kind of sucked because they're taking it away from us anyway. So why can't we just send this out how we want? It was getting closer and closer to the movie being a real thing in development. And oh, I see. Yeah. all these restrictions started coming down on us it was like the very early days started all over again but even worse so i had to deal with all this stuff from the beginning like that zanya on the chameleon thing i mentioned earlier was just Mm -hmm. that was a tiny thing we couldn't have guns pointing at the camera pointing at the reader uh on covers and you couldn't have a certain amount of like gunfire on the covers no it was like subjective on who was looking at it that day so i'm partially loathed for the killing of lady J. (laughs) And making that decision. Yeah, some people book. got beef with that. <laughs> I wanted to kill a Joe that would mean something to every single G.I. Joe character that had ever existed. It would have been like the worst thing Cobra could have done. I wanted to kill Hawk. They wouldn't let me do it. But then it's like, can I kill Lady Jane? I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, yeah, times have changed. So we paralyzed Hawk. Yeah. I just we just wanted to add real consequences yeah. to things and stuff. But, but um, so but Hawk came in to play in the World War Three story arc, and we wanted at the very end, we wanted to just finally kill Cobra Commander, and they wouldn't let us do it. So there were certain things like that that kind of took a little bit of what we had planned, but the story itself, your best, most grounded but high concept, GI, one of the best GI Joe stories ever. Mark really pulled that off. 
And I, I can't take credit for hardly any of that. I mean, that was almost all him. And, and he was working with Michael Sullivan on keeping track of all the characters and everything. Like, his continuity, like, check and balance. <laughs> I, what I love with Mark did in that story was Duke was always a struggle because, you know, Duke was one of the most generic characters because it was a typical thing where the adults making these toys didn't understand why what resonated with us as kids. Yeah. For certain reasons. Like, that's why, you know, they killed... I'm going to go on some tangents here, but come back around. <laughs> yeah. Nobody ever liked Duke. Duke was always the last on the list of everyone's favorite character. He was the forced guy and character who looked the most like the old G.I. Joe 12-inch toy. And Larry Hama just pretty much refused to do anything with him. <laughs> and then, so he was never developed in the comic book that much. So you didn't have that to really tap into. And then in the cartoon, he's the leader, but kids didn't really... And they, they did not like him, but they just didn't care about him. And they kill Optimus Prime in the movie, in the cartoon movie in the 80s, and kids lose their minds. Mm-hmm. And they're crying, and it was this huge thing. So they go, oh, crap, we were going to kill Duke in the G.I. Joe movie, and mm-hmm. we can't do that mm-hmm. now. Kids will get... It's like, no, nobody would have cared. <laughs> they would have been like, oh, crazy. I see the sadness in your eyes, Pat. I know you love Duke. So oh, Duke. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to add some layers to Duke. I, I just like when character like Destro all of a sudden kind of had this hypocritical side of this kid he just totally just abandoned. Duke, who everyone thinks is the most squeaky, clean, boring guy, actually yeah. is doing all this black ops stuff. Yeah, after, that was you know. so cool. That's the next issue. That's the next issue. And then uh, he's kind of like James. I thought he's like James Bond, you know? And, mm-hmm. and then um, like, that would be something you could, it fits the character. It doesn't contrast with what his values and background are. But then Mark added this whole other layer to it where he brings in that Duke's dad is like a total hippie protester guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> his dad is like anti military to like war protests like 60s hippie guy and it brings in this layer where duke's mom died when he was young of cancer and so it's like well there's a whole other layer that why this guy is so like by the book and regimented and he's got to like bail his dad out of jail all the time because he's in jail for some protest or something it was like perfect if no one's read the world war three there's an omnibus for it i'm sure idw is printing that making money off of it <laughs> so get the omnibus i don't even think you have to have read much gi joe before that to just enjoy it and that is one of the t- many little things that are in that storyline um, but we're talking like like 50 issues ahead in story continuity versus this podcast <laughs> we're, we're reviewing that. Now that's fine. Now we're having a good time here. No, that's all that matters. Focus on those first 24 ones. Though. Those are, those are <laughs> I really, mean, really I, good. Kind of I, is good. <laughs> I already want to lean into issue five because, like you said, when I read five, I was like, this is the coolest idea to make Duke interesting I've ever seen. You have that story kind of the seeds started in these issues. Yeah, the early issues. issues like, well, what's too. Duke been up to? Why is he in a suit? Why is yeah, he not? what's going on with him? And why the hell does Flint take orders from Duke? It's always bothered me that Flint outranks Duke, but Duke <laughs> is always in charge. Like, Flint outranks him. Always bothered. I'm a Flint guy. <laughs> there were some things like that that, yeah, I look back on. I'm like, oh, That's not probably... right. you, Josh. They've been doing that since Joe but started. I like in high, now, if I were to know, I would address some of those things. I'm like, well, I guess you guys, Joe just throws posse commentators out the window. <laughs> 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 Bring the military in on the U.S. ground, all just full on. You, you know, whatever. once you start wearing That's fancy costumes and whatever. It... <laughs> when your uniforms don't match anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> as long as you got one ninja with you, uh, you actually, it's constantly okay. <laughs> uh, we all cracked up when you called Kamakura Green Power Ranger in like issue. Yeah, <laughs> that was a... We're like, that's an old reference that's still funny oh, yeah. today. So that's, that's a... <laughs> Oh yeah, and that, that's a that was when I, you know, everyone well, remembers oh, yeah. that. You know, when you're first time I remember as a kid realizing I was just being shamelessly just exploited to buy something was when they did Tiger Force. And yes. I'm like, these are all the same characters; they just painted them different. <laughs> 
Did you create Kamakura? Is he your creation? Yeah. I thought so. Uh, Kamakura, Mistress Armada, Zanya. Yeah, it's funny though, man. Kamakura, he's totally like my Boba Fett. He's the guy that I just threw in there. He's awesome. You know? (laughs) And I had no real plans for him, and everyone's like, that guy's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I put this whole backstory thought into Zanya, and Kamakura was just like, oh, Snake. I was was more thinking about Snake Eyes. He's kind of zen now. He's the older master now. And of course, he would probably have some disciple. I hadn't really thought through the disciple as much. Just did the design for him. And I, I intentionally wanted him to offset the whole Ninja Force thing and the over-ninjaization of G.I. Joe. To be you mentioned in, that in issue two. Like, military, <laughs> yeah, like, I wanted to be a ninja, but be like military green colors and, and muted colors. Mm-hmm. So he could like feel like a ninja and an actual, you know, more like old school G.I. Joe guy. And it just kind of just wasn't really intentional. He just happens to be like the first character to appear <laughs> in the first issue. Great. I remember when I... I first saw the figure for sale and i was like what and part of me would be like yeah. oh, we don't need another new ninja but the character design was so good I, he's one of my only i've got him up here i've got i don't have very many of the toys but i've got like the characters that i did that's awesome um, awesome i don't even know how many versions they made of him i've got the very first one because he was also in the sigma six anime cartoon mm-hmm. and he looks like a naruto character he looks totally different but i don't know if he's going to be mentioned in the snake eyes movie or anything they did do a movie version of the toy for him for the old well, previous movie even though he wasn't right. Right, I've got. Uh, Yeah, so it's fun. Aaron, you've kept quiet for a long time. Do you have a burning? I'm just enjoying listening to Josh (laughs) talk. I mean, I just as an old school GI Joe fan, and after GI Joe went away, then we got some god awful GI Joe. And then to get GI Joe Real American Hero from Image, Devil's Due, written by Josh, it was just I'm loving hearing mm. all this behind the scenes. And yeah, it's some great, great insights. And I know it didn't. Like, unbelievable. But <laughs> <laughs> I know it doesn't do anything for your disdain for the movie, Aaron, to learn that pretty much Josh's run had to end because of the yeah. movie. I know. He yeah, already hates yeah. the movie. This is going to make it worse. <laughs> well, I don't know if I say I hate the movie, but. Yeah, that's not, not fair. That's it, not fair. Right. It's not what it should have been. I, I even <laughs> insinuated to them. I was like, I, I kind of mentioned it casually, like they borrowed parts of the some from some scenes from our comics and G.I. Joe and possibly in Transformers the movie the first one and the reaction we got from them was just like how dare you <laughs> <laughs> like, I wasn't even like a challenger and I just having a conversation and brought it up <laughs> you'll hear from our lawyers <laughs> like, yeah. everybody calm down <laughs> no, no, it's, it's yeah. right here in the book it's, it's <laughs> I'm, not making it up. I'm not making any friends ever they were so like uptight about that movie finally happening I can talk about it because the guy's like not there that basically the, the head of, became the head of all of the licensing there. He just never liked us. <laughs> you know, they never understood what I was trying to do with Joe. But the simple fact of basically just trying to use their own characters. They thought we were making edgy fanboy things up for like an adult audience. Like I got yelled at one time for uh, having a pimp and a dominatrix in the book because we had Deathstone's Baroness. <laughs> got yelled at one time for having the hell's angels on the cover which was just like monkey wrench and buzzer and ripper um These are your characters people <laughs> oh i mean, I mean, like, at the I mean I'm like yelled at on the phone by some vp <laughs> guy so then transformers comes along and it's they've always had this internal struggle with you know, in this modern age dealing with you know by modern age i mean 2001 dealing with the fact that these are military characters and they're shooting people and it's a kid's property. For some reason, you know, Marvel was always like, hey, we've got five-year-old version of Spider-Man and, and you know, X-Men. We've got the teenager version. We've got the adult version. Uh, and like, we've even got this like max 
HBO kind of version, you know? Uh-huh. So every brand with it that has aged has an understanding. And some of these toy companies, I think, didn't really, this was their first time dealing with that. And they're so focused on being child's properties. You know, if you're not pleasing a five-year-old, they thought you were a failure. I had come from that licensing world. I'm, I'm used to like, once you get the license secured, they send you style guides. And that's a big fat book of every single thing that the character looks like from every different angle, colors of the complexion of the characters, the costumes of the characters. All the rules, the rules of the universe you're supposed to get, that didn't exist. They had nothing. Send me like a pack of black and white Xeroxed photocopy pages of some G.I. Joe stuff they happened to be able to find. And it was one where like, Duke looks like a Silverhawk from <laughs> he's like a jetpack and he's flying. And not like the old 80s cartoon jetpacks. It was like some weird space Duke or something. I don't know. I'm like, oh, space Duke. Like, well, what about oh, Duke? They didn't. Uh, whoever I was dealing with at the time wasn't familiar with who Snake Eyes was. That's that's a big hole. So <laughs> yes, yeah, that's from the get go. And then I'm told that I get the license because then we beat some other people out for it. And I'm told that oh, uh, the person in charge of the GI Joe brand is starting soon. I'm going to report to the licensing guy who just started, and then this GI Joe brand guy who is just about to start. That's who we're reporting to. No style guides mm. for anything. This guy, the we're already the guy, the licensing guy, immediately just hates everything we're doing and thinks that we're trying to make this edgy, vile book that's going to corrupt children or something. <laughs> and then I didn't know this until years later. The GI Joe brand guy turns out he lost the license to us. He was one of the people competing. Oh. <laughs> Not a good setup for success. <laughs> yeah, but he just had such a passion for the twelve-inch characters. It is the is the eighties, like all oh, of these things, whatever you know. But um, I don't think that anyone there feels this way now, you know. Mm-hmm. But that was our whole relationship there those first couple of years. And then we're being wildly successful with it. Yeah. So while the things that they're doing are kind of struggling in it, every single toy line they came up with, we were on board trying to do something with it. Spy Troops, we want to work on that. Oh, Sigma 6, boom, we're making a comic book. We've got it in the newsstand at all the borders and Barnes and & Noble, and we've got it everywhere. Kids wouldn't buy it, unfortunately, you know, and the adults kind of supported it a little bit. We were there, though. We wanted something to hit. Mm-hmm. So um, when uh, the movie stuff came around, they were just pushing us out all of a sudden, like, well, can you handle a big property like this? Meanwhile, we had done, we were doing Family Guy, we'd done Child's Play, we're doing uh, all this other 80s stuff. But the guy, that licensing guy, Transformers come along like right after us. You know, I just, I would have gotten Transformers. I had one shot. G.I. Joe had been dead pretty much. Transformers never stopped. Even though I kind of liked it, but I wasn't crazy about it. But Beast Machines, Beast Wars, those were wild. Those are really successful sto- you know, shows. So mm-hmm. Joe was just laying there. So it's like, okay, let's go for Joe. And it worked. I always wanted to go back for Transformers right away. But then Dreamwave came in, swooped it up, got it. That's just robots shooting robots. Mm-hmm. Just sci-fi. As far as even if a person doesn't understand the complexity in this backstory of the Transformers, they just, they're not threatened by it. So this guy loved Dreamwave. <laughs> And and he he wanted them to buy the company. He he wanted to buy them. And he got people in Hasbro interested in buying them. And they almost signed off on it from everything I've gathered from different people telling me. And to do that, I don't think that, you know, you could have done that without kind of bringing up like, oh, these double zero guys are always a problem. You know, they're always doing this crazy stuff with the characters, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, can they even handle what they're doing? And Which is making yeah, they, a lot they, of money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One thing is I didn't go for Transformers. So I always knew Transformers was a bigger brand than G.I. Joe. It just was. It was more global. It was just more money. So I thought that's going to be a harder one to get. I'll get that. If I can get it, I'll get it later. It sold more, you know, so 
part of it was G.I. Joe was the first ever 80s retro property comic book ever to come back in 2001. There had been no other predecessors based on one of these old cartoon comic properties. All the retailers were caught off guard. So Transformers follows right after us. Now they're ready. You know. They're ready. They're not going to be caught with their pants on. They might have even overordered it. On top of that, it's also a bigger branch. I don't think the comic book had been as long successful as the G.I. Joe comic book with that quite a comic book passion, but still bigger brand. We sell 130,000 copies and they're like, why are you only selling 130? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Transformers comes along, those efforts sell 200,000 and it's like, oh, see, they know what they're doing. <laughs> oh, we have all these problems with them, you know, you know, Megatron can just crush an Autobot's head with his foot. And it's totally fine with robots. So, okay, so when the when the license was up, there had been this plan to have uh, Dreamwave buy, be sold off to Hasbro, and they went bankrupt. <laughs> so, all of a sudden, it was like, okay, well, this guy looks like an ass, you know, for probably, I'm assuming, for, you know, for having hyped these guys up. Transformers is a limbo. Everyone expected them to give it to us. They gave it to IDW, which was like, at the time, a horror company. You know, they just did 30 Days a Night. It was a huge success, and they mm-hmm. were doing really creepy books. Mm-hmm. So, for someone like me, who's getting yelled at all the time for, you know, having a very benign character on the cover that they think is, like, horrible or something to go to this horror company. It was weird. If it wasn't us, they thought it would go to Dynamite or uh, one of these other companies. They just, they had investors at the right time. They are way more skilled at the corporate politics than I was in you know, all that. And the guy was clearly already had the plan and already sent out the message like, yeah, we're pushing these guys out. Mm. And then he'd already had that plan. And then it was plan was derailed with Dreamwave going under. He couldn't go back on it. Right. <laughs> so and if I felt like I'm totally full of <laughs> like a month after we lost the license, this guy finally got axed. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was the higher, higher, higher ups. Finally, we're like, okay, we're restructuring and doing some stuff. You're gone. Yeah. So that's kind of sucks. That's how it ended. But um, yeah. it's just that uh, Game of Thrones type of stuff. <laughs> I was <laughs> the bloodbath behind the scenes. That is one thing when you are coming at it from the creative side and from the passion side. You're not even thinking, especially when you're younger, you're not even thinking about that stuff. Somebody else who that is in there and who's not on the creative side, that's all they're thinking about all day long is how we're going to make sure, you know, who do I talk to and make sure they're okay with this. Right. I forget what even got me on that tangent. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right. We're about to uh, wrap up this section. But I have a three-hour podcast. That's quite all right. It's, it's, we're thrilled to have you here. This is the, yeah, the audience wants to hear this stuff. So it's wonderful, man. I have a question that Pat and Aaron might jump all over me for because I don't know, but this last panel of issue four that we're covering here for the end of the story arc, is that Snake Eyes' first official face reveal? Aaron says no. Oh, no, no. that That's back in the Marvel comics. They showed Did his it? face. I kind of faded out in the later run of Marvel, so I must have missed that. And I get the disappointed look now from Aaron. I didn't, <laughs> yeah, he, he wears a roller mask. It was kind of a disappointing, it was a disappointing reveal, to be honest, back in the day, because you, you were told this whole time people saw Snake Eyes' face and like, pretty much, <gasps> like, like threw up. Right. Yeah. And then they finally show his face and he has like a scar, which probably <laughs> honestly probably came back to like the toy company saying like, that's going to be too scary for kids. Huh. Wasn't it like cover with like the extra cover hidden, you know, like a slit in it and it was hidden and you opened it up or was a poly bag or something? Like I know it was like a big, big deal. They're going to reveal it. around issue 90. They had the Snake Eyes trilogy where yeah. they revealed some yeah. more of his backstory and where they're trying to repair his face. And 
That would explain why I missed it. I think I faded her out. funny is I legit can't remember if they had already fixed his face with plastic surgery or if I did that saying, oh, his face has been fixed now. I can't remember. We can't fight you on it because we can't remember. <laughs> I think I say, back in that story, I think they, they fixed, fixed his face, Marvel. but at the end of then the storyline, he had a yeah, fire or something got thrown in his face, and so he got, demo- he got destroyed again. Again? Thanks, okay. Snake Eyes. <laughs> I just think Snake Eyes should be a character. He's just, at his heart, he's, he's just a messed up guy. You know, he's going to have... Mm-hmm. I mean, now you could probably you get in all these stories with PTSD and everything else with them, you know, but so topical now, but being finally being talked about. But that's kind of why I did the whole wedding thing. It was like, he seems like the kind of tragic character where when things start going right is when he's going to self-sabotage on a personal <laughs> level. Oh, and there was just always one moment I always wanted to have where, you know, just I never got it in there where it sounds so silly, but I just thought it'd be cool. If, like he doesn't wear headphones and just someone makes a little kind of like, oh, no, Snake Eyes doesn't wear headphones ever. <laughs> like with an iPod or something, you know, because he's then he can't hear everything that's going on around him because he's just like. Yeah. Also, thought it'd be funny if you finally heard him talk and he just had a big hillbilly accent. He's really jovial. <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hello, governor. Uh, Wait, he's a chimney sweep. What? <laughs> Damn, it feels good to be able to talk now. <laughs> <laughs> I got so much to say, y'all. I got so many dad dad jokes I've been holding back. <laughs> <laughs> I got all these ninja jokes I wrote over the past fifteen years. <laughs> you might be a ninja if. Fox <laughs> <laughs> really of ninja jokes. I love it. I just saw it because I read all these jokes. <laughs> <laughs> You know, guys, we've peppered him with a thousand questions from a thousand angles. You guys have any more burning questions before we we move on and and move towards closeout? Not at this point. I think he's answered. He has. He's he's very nicely. We appreciate it. So at this point, I'm going to hand it back to DJ Cristados to get the IG's report on the combat readiness of this issue. And for those of you who don't speak military, like me, that means we're going to score this issue story on the same 1 to 10 flag point scale we used earlier. So let's go ahead. We'll start with Josh. (laughs) And (laughs) he's holding up his eyes. (laughs) <laughs> He's giving himself a tip. I, 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 go, I gotta go read the story so I can come back. <laughs> oh, well, that's a 10 from Josh. Go figure that one. I'll do an 8. <laughs> then I'll go read it. That's a safe bet. He's like, I'll hedge my bets with an 8. Well, if you're passing it to me, I'm not doing it because Josh is here. This story is a 10. This is the closeout of a 10 story arc. We've talked about this in the last three episodes and now here on episode four. What a great way to reinvigorate the franchise. We all bought it back in the day. We all bought back in. Rereading it again for this podcast mm-hmm. has been an amazing experience. And to have Josh here to cap it off for this, the end of the first arc is just boom. 10, 10, 10. 10, 10. Back to you, Pat. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and get Aaron's. Don't screw this up, Aaron. <laughs> I'm gonna. That's what I do. <laughs> well, uh, originally, when I first reread it, I gave it an eight. But then I reread it again, and I have been looking through it. I, I'm gonna have to give it a nine point a nine point five. Oh, he busted out a point five on our show, Pat. I know you guys aren't fans of the whole halves, but you know what? <laughs> we'll give it a nine point five. Now I told him about all his like inner Hasbro drama to deal with. <laughs> he felt bad for you. <laughs> I feel bad for the poor guy. No, it was it's a great story. Like you see, you know, and we and we talked about it. It's just fantastic. It's almost damn near perfect. So that's a nine point five, man. You did a fantastic job. I, I love it. 
Thank you. All right. Well, good. Uh, and for me, I'm going to go with Jarrett as well. I'm giving it a 10. I really enjoyed it from the cover to the back cover, two great back-to-back covers, story as well inside. The art is just a combination of everything I was looking for when Joe came back. It really came together and pulled it all off for me. Got me hooked even more and more. I wanted to know more with the characters that were introduced and the characters that we've grown up, or at least I've grown up with and, and, you know, began to love and want to see more of what's happening. And a new, fresh take on it as well, too. So I I like what was done here and looking forward to the, the future of these. Excellent. And now it's time to award this episode's Silver Star Medal for Gallantry in Action. Or you could also choose a cobra for a silver snake. Silver snake. This is where we each get to award the character in this issue who went above and beyond the call of duty. I'll go with Aaron. Give me just one second, please. All right, thanks for being here, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> that that Cobra Commander back cover he was holding up again. We did posters of that. I don't know if it's probably on eBay or something, but if you get a hold of one of those posters, it's sick. Yeah, yeah that, that is great. Just, that is great. That's David Michael Beck. I love that. Um, great. He did that first Snake Eyes back cover, too, that... That's what we put on the message boards back then. That besides the J. Sky Campbell stuff, when we put that Snake Eyes painting up mm-hmm. on the message boards, that's what just pushed it over the tipping point of people saying, "Holy sh! <laughs> this is it!" And you know what? It's funny. Go back and look at the promotional pictures of Ray Park mm-hmm. and Snake yep. Eyes for the movie, and look Thank at that you. cover. Yeah. On top of that, before that redesign, Snake Eyes had never had his. Uh, I basically ripped off the best design ever you know that snake eyes design from like the uh, second version two snake eyes very small changes to it that i didn't even think were that special or anything and they actually used that for that costume so they did the little the wrist guard thing you had with the little i call them batman utility belt vials on there (laughs) but yeah it was beck's painting though man that i think they saw that and they were like yeah we're using this for the movie (laughs) (laughs) but that cold cannon poster man yeah i kind of wish i still had that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is legit. Yeah, Aaron, did that. you get your life put back together? I hope so. That is some buzzing sound. I was trying to where the hell was coming from. <laughs> Anyways, you yes, I'm, I'm here. So, the Silver Star. I'm going to have to go with Lifeline. He's always been one of my about favorites, but I've always enjoyed Lifeline. But the fact that he came up with about reprogramming the nanomites, and he was one of the ones that helped resolve this whole thing. And the fact that, you know, I just, again, part of it is nostalgic because I love him as a character. But yeah, he does a fantastic job. He just shows up. I'm not sure what's going on here. I mean, wait a minute. What if we do this and do this? Oh, there's your problem. Yep. yep. <laughs> I just thought he was fantastic. Jared? And he's a pacifist. And he's a pacifist. Yes. I hate it when this happens, but I have to agree with Aaron. I'm giving my silver star to Lifeline. And Pat, you know what to do, who to give your silver star to, because the combo of those two characters is what really solved the Nano Knight problem. Plus, it's one of your favorite characters. So I, yep, I was going to choose either Lifeline or Mainframe. So go ahead. Go with that. <laughs> yep, so I'm going to go with Mainframe. Because <laughs> those are the guys that got Definitely. it done. They saved the day. I mean, mm-hmm. sure, Duke was on the front lawn punching out Cobras. But if those guys behind it's the scenes tech had guys. all the, the tech guys behind the scenes. And yes, I'm coming from being an eight-year communications officer with the Air Force. I'm a tech guy <laughs> behind the scenes. So it's near and dear to my heart. And Pat, I know you work tech. Yeah, if Lifeline and Mainframe did their stuff by themselves, the Secret Service just could have handled the rest of it. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That wouldn't have been very much fun to watch, though. But 
Yeah, I'm with Lifeline, and Pat sounds like you're with Mainframe, huh? Yeah, definitely. Josh, if you would to choose. Uh, without rereading the story, uh, <laughs> some the Silver Snake to Destro for coming back. There you go. Yeah. That's a good Heck one. yeah. Oh, just, just seeing that back, too, and looking at that full-page spread of Destro back again. Standing there um, in front of the jail cell. I'm going to go with, slap my kid around for a little bit. Yeah, with, with the 80s. Yeah, that was fantastic. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, that was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun to go back and look at these. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you guys will indulge me for, you know, just a little bit more nostalgia, it's time Mm -hmm. for Death Probe's Toy Chest. It's here, the G.I. Joe collection, each sold separately. G.I. Joe from Hasbro. In this segment, I will take something or someone featured in this issue and give you a brief toy history on it. For this issue, I've selected Flint. He is front and center on the cover. So in case you didn't know, his real name is DeShiel Fairborn. His grade is W-2. He's a warrant officer, even though there was an error on his original file card saying he was an E-6 in the text that said he was a warrant officer, which is why he outranks Duke, and it's always bothered me. But enough about that. (laughs) He's from Wichita, Kansas. His primary specialty is infantry. His secondary specialty is a helicopter pilot, as most of the warrant officers in the Army are. I can tell you that because that's what my dad did. His figure description. He has a black beret, a black shirt with camo pants and brown gloves. He comes with a shotgun and a backpack and just a real brief figure history. His first version came out in Series 4 in 1985 and was discontinued in 1987. And there are... 20 versions of Flint. Different versions of the Flint figure at the time of this recording. You can generally tell how popular a character is by the number of versions they get, and 20 versions is quite a bit, so Flint's a fairly popular cat. And with that, I'm going to pass it back to Pat for our feedback segment called Combat Comms. Take it away, Pat. Thank you, Jared. As always, we'll start off Combat Comms with a roster of our battle-hardened Crusader Club veterans. These are the fine folks who have joined our Crusaders Club. They enjoy discounts from Majera's online store, theyardsaleartist.bigcartel.com, early access to special long box episodes, free raffle giveaways, voting on show programming, and much, much more. So these are the folks reaping the benefits and giving some much appreciated support to the show. Gerald Green, I the Collector, Joe Thomas, Angelica Wolf, Bill from the Bat Pod, Blasted Tasha, Braxton Underwood, Reggie Hancock, Robert, Samantha Maney, Sean Urbanski, Steve Curtin, Ryan Daly, Bob Buster, David Capoon, David Collins, Battle Wagon, Gene Hendricks, Ivor Evans, Jeremy L, Jim Jarman, John and Maggie, Jose Poyo, Maxwell Traver, Miranda W, Paul Hicks. Jeff and Rick Crisson. Ross Michaud. Tim Price. Toronto Cop. And one-time donor, Bradford Williams. If we miss anyone on our list, we apologize. Please keep in mind that we record these episodes well in advance of release, so if you are a recent addition, we should be adding you soon. But still, no worries. Just let us know that we missed you and by sending an email at contact at longboxcrusade.com and we will get it straightened out. You might be asking yourself, how do I become a Crusaders Club member? It's simple. Just head on over to patreon.com and search for the Longbox Crusade. For as little as $1 a month, you'll get access to the amazing world of the Crusaders Club. Come check it out. Now, let's see what messages from our platoon of loyal listeners we have waiting for us on Breakers Comsat. Communications officer, code name Breaker. I'll start with a comment we got from Green Lantern HG. We all love GLHG. He said, I think I enjoyed this episode more than I should have. First off, great episode as always. 
The issue was fantastic. It almost makes me want to cheat and skip ahead and read them all already, but I want to earn those stripes, so I'll hang tough. <laughs> so we appreciate it. GLAC, he's reading along with the podcast. And that's yes. always the most fun way to do it. That puts pressure on you guys to keep doing the podcast. <laughs> I know. Well, we're going to keep doing it. I sent off oh, yeah, my entire cool. run of the first and my America's Elite to be hardbacked, because that's how I roll, because I'm fancy, right? Oh, Matt? awesome. So mine are being hardbacked as we speak, because I'm so fancy. <laughs> How that in the bag of chips. <laughs> How fast is it that for grab a comment? I'm going to take one here from Ryan Daly, and Ryan says, "Great episode, fellas. I like the part when you talk about GI Joe." <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. So do we. <laughs> That's a very Ryan-like comment. <laughs> Aaron, you want to grab one? Sure. I'm going to pick another one here from Green Lantern HG. This one says, "And finally, the trophy." In the beginning, Jared started strong with his major jackass, then Pat, then Delvin, then Jared. But with a score of three to one, I have to give it to at Christatos01 for a sneaky comment. These nuts on the optics. <laughs> I hate it when you win trophies from GLHG, but I'm still proud. Of Very you. few and far between that I do, but <laughs> well, all right. And, and thanks for everybody who's been supporting the show. This has been great fun. Mm-hmm. And of course we've got Definitely. Josh here, which makes it even more fun. But that will bring us to a mission complete status for this episode of G.I. Joe Chronicles, The Devil's Do Years. If you'd like to hear more from us in the realm of comic books, action films, vintage TV, movie serials, all that good stuff, check out the entire Longbox Crusade Network. DJ Cristados, where can they find that? Well, Jared, I'm glad you asked. You can find us on the iTunes, Google Play, and most podcatchers or at www.longboxcrusade.com. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Longbox Crusade. If you'd like to check with us online, we can be found at, I'm at Cristados01 on the Twitter, Jared. I'm at Yard Sale Artist. That's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all Yard Sale Artist. Aaron? On Twitter. I don't do very much there, but I do have a Twitter at G.I. Joe Headcast. And uh, my main website is Head Speaks, where you can find all my different podcasts. And that will take us to Josh. Josh, this is the time to pimp, man. Talk about yeah. your Kickstarter. Talk about where people can reach out and find you. Josh Blaylock on Twitter. Josh Blaylock on Facebook. Josh C. Blaylock on Instagram. And then devilsdo.net has all of the books we're still publishing. There's Devil's Do on Instagram. Devil's Do on Twitter. Devil's Do Comics on Facebook. And then, yeah, by pimping, I mentioned this book earlier, Arc World. This is a little flip book promo we did. Well, they can't see this on the podcast, but it's but cool. Trust trust us. Trust it looks us. cool. It's cool. So, yeah, we've got, well, this, so this nice. you can't see it on the podcast. This is uh, one of those elongated Paracas skulls they call uh-huh. them like, kind of like some of them can be explained some of them can't <laughs> but it just as a hint to the story i told about earlier go to archeopunk.com a-r-c-h-e-o-p-u-n-k you get cyberpunk steampunk this is archeopunk archeopunk.com you get a free digital download of this comic-con preview we may be launching a Kickstarter tomorrow. It depends on if this thing goes through or not. So, <laughs> <laughs> so keep but there, definitely there, there is, there is. I don't think I'm forced in saying there is a little bit of a GI Joe vibe that's going to be in there because some of the, even though they're you're talking about different technology and different characters, it's a, it's definitely going to be sort of a team vibe. So they could at least and, keep checking back at the website to find out when the Kickstarter does launch. Yeah, and I, as far as Joe goes, I actually for the first time in years, you know, I really just didn't have anything like struck inspiration and. A while back, I finally had an idea that I 
haven't really gotten out of my head that would continue on our quote unquote disavowed universe. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's a way that you could once again, re-update the characters a little bit and everything and make it work for today with dealing with a lot of the challenges Hasbro's trying to avoid (laughs) and still make it feel like G.I. Joe. And it centers around Lady J. Oh, but I thought you killed her off. (laughs) Um, So I don't know. Just throwing that out there into the G.I. Joe world. (laughs) Oh man, the tantalization. (laughs) Speaking of which, the G.I. Joe world, is there a way they can still support you financially trades omnibuses things that that they can buy that you can get royalties for because we want to take care uh, of no guys. hasbro owned everything we did and anything idw sells theirs and they pay royalties to hasbro oh okay so um your independent projects is the place to be for to get you some yeah, coin yeah. in your pocket you some and i get yeah. if there's anything i definitely am is that i'm not consistent <laughs> <laughs> the type of genres that I do, it's all <laughs> over the freaking place. So, uh, yeah, I don't expect G.I. Joe fans to like everything that we do because, you know, just bouncing around different genres. But we do have some cool books. And I mean, I like I do think our quote, I am working on a book with Mark Powers called and right now the working title is encoded it's near future deals with ai mercenary humans and robots working together as a team to stamp out new ai before it takes over the backstory is sort of like what if the matrix or skynet like weren't the bad guy what if they were sort of like ambivalent or benevolent and it was john connor and neo like they were like these misguided zealots that brought it down and caused all the problems Oh, so, um, neat take. Mark Powers that did World War Three. We're working on that. But I don't know when it'll be released. So for now, Arc World, check out Mercy Sparks. There's an omnibus collection of that. There's a fourth volume collection of that. If you like more adult content, supernatural action, humor, with a big complex backstory on top of it. Uh, lots of drinking, smoking, and cussing. <laughs> <laughs> on the military, more like side, I did a book that, I guess, yeah, I just shout out to this book because that's really flew under the radar. It's one of the best things I feel like I've ever written. It's called Operation Nemesis. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you can get it on Amazon. We should have it on our website or our web store. <laughs> it's about the Armenian genocide and it's about a uh, true story about an assassination taken out by the Armenians after the war to take out the former Turkish leaders responsible for it. Oh, wow. And it's a badass story. It's all true. It's brutal and, and really intense read. What's but, it called uh, again? Operation Nemesis, Story Operation of Genocide Nemesis. and Revenge. Ooh, about it's about Sogolman Talirian. Check that out. Spend, on yeah. Not to be confused with Eric Bogosian from Law and Order's uh, book, Operation Nemesis. <laughs> which came out. <laughs> we both put these books out at the same, at the 100th anniversary of the uh, Armenian Genocide. So. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Well, there you heard it, folks. Please support his products. He, he gave us so much wonderful Joe content, which unfortunately is not get, put lining his pockets anymore. So please, you can you can support my Joe by telling whoever the powers to be are now. Hey, tell you what, everybody, <laughs> let's just flood Hasbro and all those guys and get Josh back on that book. He's got a story to tell. I want to know what that Lady J story is. Yeah. Definitely. So might I just have to that, throw it out there on the fan a fanfic <laughs> for him at some point if I, if I have to get out of my head. That's awesome. So that's how you catch up with Josh, and if you want to catch up with us and chat with us and interact with us and of course be entered to win some free stuff in our live raffles you can join us on our next episode of doing it live stream over on youtube second sunday of every month and we always start at about 3 30 p.m central time head on over to youtube check out long box crusade give us a subscription and maybe click the bell and that would make us all very happy having said all that i want to thank aaron for being here i want to thank josh for being here 
And I want to thank everybody for joining us for this special episode of G.I. Joe Chronicles, The Devil's Due Years. We will see you on the battlefield next episode where we will cover one of my favorites, issue number five. Until then, Platoon, Fallout. Yo, 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 yo. Show. Cobra! <laughs> la, 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 la. <laughs> <laughs>